Welcome to the Onyx Report, a program that critically analyzes the experiences, histories, and perceptions of black males in American society across age, class, region, sexuality, and profession. I'm your host, Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Fresno State, black male studies scholar, and black male advocate. In the program, we examine current events and major issues using an empirically driven black masculinist theoretical lens, thus including such concepts as the black male dual economy, anti-black misandry, phallicism, the subordinate male target hypothesis, and the black dynarchy. Our goal is to remind people, including black men themselves, of black men's humanity. Join us every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, either on YouTube or innerlightradio.com. All right, people, welcome back to the Onyx Report, April 15th. Um, in here, just uh, getting you know getting acclimated uh, still. I uh, woke up in some pain today, so I took something for pain, and it kicked in five minutes before the show started. So <laughs> I hope I'm uh, completely clear, but uh, in the moment, I'm, I'm feeling very good. Anyway, um, today's show, we're dealing with mate selection, policy influences in the black family. And I have uh, two brothers that I'll be introducing to you in a moment. We're going to have a dialogue about uh, observations on the state of the black family, the state of dating and mating. And a lot of that, uh, as you all know, is going to be from the vantage point of black men. As this show it, you know, is framed, it's really about um, you know, black men being able to articulate their experiences and their truths. Uh, from their own context um, and so that's definitely what we're going to be doing today but as you guys know the way I like to generally start this is to you know just very quickly touch off on, to, uh, on a couple of quick things uh, especially in relation to current events I'm not going to do a lot of that today because I want to give some, some time to the discussion and we're actually going to listen to uh, a video posted by one of my guests uh, so that'll be about a, uh, a nice little segment that I think will be uh, of interest to you uh, first off, let me say I hope you guys are being safe. I hope you guys are, 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 are uh, res you know, taking care of family and you're able to do so. Shout out to those of you that have to go out and work uh, and risk your health to do so, uh, especially in particular to the men who are holding down families um, with their efforts and their sacrifice. I know in many instances uh, you're unthanked, you're unacknowledged, and much of the time you're taken for granted. So if nobody else is saying it, I want to say it, you know, shout out to you. And I hope you're being careful in the midst of protecting those that you love. Um, and that goes even for brothers who are out there by themselves, uh, which is a whole nother issue unto itself. If you are isolated, you are taking care of yourself and there's nobody there. Your brothers here at the Onyx Report are definitely with you. And we uh, we send our energy and support your way. Keep your head up and stay connected no matter how uh, isolated things can feel. Right. Uh, real quick, you know, kind of uh, mention. I, I started uh, about a about a week and a half ago. I started a new service uh, to my Patreon supporters, my twenty dollar a month Patreon supporters. I'm doing uh, two to four film reviews that are on video format that you'll have access to on a variety of films, and this is designed for uh, fathers uh, to speak to their sons, particularly through this quarantine, about issues relevant to black manhood, masculinity, and so on and so forth. Uh, so I, I'm doing two to four film reviews per month that you'll have access to as a $20 a month Patreon supporter. You can find me on uh, patreon.com slash thjohnson, and I am doing custom 
reviews for those who are you know requesting particular films uh the first one in the queue already is um a story written by walter mosley acted by Lawrence fishburne always outnumbered always outgunned and within the next 48 hours i'll be po posting the second review on samuel jackson's uh, the banker so that'll be available to those who are interested and again this is actually uh supporter requested and it is a series of film reviews, discussion points, historical narratives, and you know suggestions on how to include your own family history uh, to you know so so you and your children can actually watch and loved ones can watch films together, and you'll have some added information to bring to bear on having those discussions, particularly around black manhood, right? Um, so moving on, real quick, I want to shout out. Uh, and this is thanks to Kwadwo Adol Gyan. Uh, I want to shout out the, the passing of one Baba Omawale Oshun Koya, who uh, formerly was known as Charles Brunson, Black Panther uh, uh, activist, who was survived by his wife, Ia Margot. Uh, I want to shout them out. We are having, uh, you know, soldiers are going down in response to this virus. I want to shout out my, my, you know, brothers in New York who were kind enough to respond to a post I made on Facebook, uh, I think yesterday, uh, time flows differently in the midst of this quarantine, but yesterday I posted on the uh, 10,000 that were reported as having died in New York. And of course there was uh, you know, some backlash about interpretation and that whether or not, not those numbers were accurate. Um, and so I requested that brothers from New York write in and tell us what they're going through. And some of the stories were just you know, heartbreaking. They were appalling. Ambulances going on throughout the day, throughout the night, friends, family members, you know, passing, um, you know, people dying in their homes and not being found. Uh, so I want to shout out to those of you, especially in New York, who are grappling with this to unprecedented degrees. Um, again, keep your head up, be safe, um, keep your head on a swivel and make sure you are as careful as possible. Uh, as far as Fresno, where I'm located, obviously, um, it's far, it's a far different, you know, case than something like New York. And Fresno, what we're looking at right about now, as of April 14th, there's about 251 cases. And this is, uh, Fresno County. It's about 251 cases and about seven deaths. So it has, it has been low. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, um, I'm grateful for that, but we're still trying to stay vigilant, uh, just to make sure, especially in an era where black men, are being criminalized for wearing the very masks that we're being told uh, may protect us in certain instances. So I want to definitely uh, kind of caution you. There are a number of articles out on this. Uh, so all you need to do is Google uh, black men, masks, criminalization, uh, or just black men and masks. And you, you'll likely come up with a few articles looking at how black men are being treated. Um, as was the case for one black doctor in Miami who was testing the homeless for COVID-19 and was detained just outside of his home on video by a police officer um, who put him in cuffs and threatened to take him off to his car until his wife was able to bring out his ID and verify who he was. And they say that they thought he was illegally offloading trash. But we know that uh, many of these instances, we don't even need to be in a quarantine to be treated this way or in a mask for that matter. But uh, just doing what we've all been told uh, would make us safe is is an, is an opportunity for black men to find themselves under even more threat. 
So, you know, again, these issues impact most issues in many ways impact black men differently. And as I've said, said on recent recent shows, this is also the case for COVID-19, even in terms of deaths. And one of the things I want to I want to remind my audience to check into is what we tend to find is in the black community. When we talk about issues that affect us, we either talk about it in this kind of amalgamous black idea or if we genderize it, we only talk about that in relation to women and girls. Uh, So if it's an issue that overwhelmingly impacts black males, it's a black issue. If it overwhelmingly impacts black women and girls, it's a black women or black girls issue. And that tends to leave boys and men uh, as secondary. Right. Uh, And we tend to have the attitude. Well, we already know what issues affect them. And I've heard people I've heard academics say this verbatim. We know enough about black men. There's nothing else to discuss when in actuality, there's quite a bit. So even if we're talking about COVID-19 deaths, um, you know, try and follow the data and not just the theory or the assumptions about who this virus is affecting. Follow the data as it's presented on the number of black men that are dying. And if you're in a position to demand details, then not don't don't just demand details on the basis of race. Let's demand it on the basis of both race and gender, mainly because, it, you know, black men are, are leading in many ways. Uh, and this is a, due to a variety of social conditions that also influence this in regard to everything from poverty to health. Um, and so black men are, are highly susceptible, having to work in many instances and at the same time being vulnerable based on uh, our health and so on and so forth. So let's make sure we uh, we actually ask the question and be specific and unapologetic about asking about black men, because that's another thing many of us have been trained to do is to be chivalrous to the degree that we don't know how to isolate ourselves, ask questions about ourselves and engage our issues because we're told that our issues are just black issues. Uh, And that and and I think we're in a new day and era where that is far too general. Um, So um, let's see Uh, what I'm going to do from here. Check out an article, just just real quickly, check out two articles uh, that might be of interest to you. There's one on political.com about the New York public housing outbreak of COVID-19 and how it's wreaking havoc in uh, in New York City's uh, public housing sector. Um, And then also look into an article on newyorktimes.com on the San Francisco shelter outbreak. So that's the COVID-19 homeless shelter outbreak. And as I've said on the show for the last few weeks, the two most susceptible and most under, you know, observed communities that are like a time bomb in relation to any kind of serious virus are the incarcerated and the homeless, both of which are overrepresented in regard to black men. So again, we find ourselves vulnerable on those two fronts as well. And those two communities are tied together, right? Because many homeless people are incarcerated for being homeless. And then there are plenty of, um, convicts that are being released, they're ex-cons, but have no place to go and end up homeless and end up uh, being the foundation of many major urban tent cities that we're seeing. So these two populations are linked and we're seeing some reporting on the extent that the virus has impacted both communities. But because both communities are so underobserved, it's my suspicion that by the time we see articles on it, it's 10 times worse than it is because there is no checking how fast this can spread, particularly amongst those two populations. So be mindful and uh, definitely send out positive energy and prayers uh, to those communities, uh, especially in relation to black men. 
So I have two guests today, uh, both of whom are brothers that I have run into on social media and whose observations, whose perspectives and experiences I thought were interesting and offered us a moment of reflection. So the way we're going to go about this, uh, I'm going to be introducing uh, my good brother, Rais Mohadeen, and then I'm going to be introducing my brother, Doug, from Atlanta. And we're going to dialogue about, as I said earlier, mating selection, the black family and policy influences. Now, I'm going to start this by uh, playing a video from uh, Mr. Muhadeen, and uh, he is a 17-year logistics supervisor. He's a Muslim and a community activist, and he had some very interesting observations on the black family. Uh, and then from there, I'm going to bring in, after we play the video, uh, I'll bring in uh, my good brother Doug from Atlanta to share uh, an experience he had that I think weighs heavily in the lives of black men. Okay, so let's start the video uh, with Mr. Muhadeen, please. Oh, so anyway, uh, I want to talk about because a lot of times we uh, we beat each other up or we encourage the beating of self up over the choices that we make in the mate. <clears throat> but there are some. Oh, just by the way, if you ask, like, what qualifies me on this subject? I, I, just, I tell people all the time, like I work in logistics. Um, and so in logistics, I am encouraged to understand the process of things, the process of things. So I need to know, like, I put everything on the table, what is valued uh, in the process, what is not valued in the process, and how to make the process more efficient. And so what we're talking about here is the efficiency of mate selection, the efficiency of mate selection. Um, so the first thing you have to do is understand it from this perspective, right? When you go in any particular restaurant, right? The choices that you have are limited by the particular restaurant that you find yourself in, right? So if I go into, uh, if I go into Olive Garden, right? I can't ask for uh, deluxe fried rice with no pork, right? I'm limited in the scope. I'm limited in the scope because of the particular restaurant that I chose. Well, it's the same when you when you're trying to choose a mate, right? Um, there are different selections in different ethnicities. There are different selections in different ethnicities. So you have some people who marry outside of their race, right? They need what they desire is something outside of the context in which they are typically looking for a mate. But when you're talking about looking for a mate in the black community, you what, what's the family structure of the black community? Because that's going to determine the quality of the mates. And that's the reason why you don't have these conversations uh, that we have about mate selection amongst black people that you have, let's say, amongst Asian people, right? Because I, I say this almost every day, 83% of black children will see their families dissolve by the time they're 18. That is imperative when you're talking about the mate selection of the coming generation, right? The coming generation is going to have to choose a mate from that 83% of black families that were dissolved before the age of 18. That's where you got to choose your mate from. You got to choose your mate from those dissolution families. That's where you choose your mate from. That's the restaurant that you go to to choose your mate. So don't beat yourself up about your individual selection because sometimes people act like there are these plethora of qualified black mates out there and you just chose the shitty ones. And that's just not how it happens, man. You choose somebody that you think that you can overcome 
that 83% with, right? You choose someone that you think you can overcome that 83%, 83% with, but there's a reason that they're that 83%. There's a reason for that. So don't beat yourself up about that. If the only option that you have to choose a better mate is to, you know, like, I mean, let's just be real. If, 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 I, if I wanted the mate that I think I deserve, I would probably have to go to the Asian community because it's obvious that they have the family and value structures that I value, right? Amongst my people, we don't value that. That's why we have 83%. If we didn't have the 83% failure rate in our family structures, then we would be able to find people who value family the way we all claim to value family. But that's not what we do. We don't value family. That's why 83% of black children will see their family dissolved by the age of 18. And 67%, 7 out of 10, will see their families dissolved before they are 2. Which means we can't keep a relationship together for 2 years. And those are the people that you got to choose a mate from. And I'm trying to say to you that your choice is not merely your choice. Your choice is not merely your choice. Your choice is determined by the context in which you have to make that choice in. And we have to make that choice in a context where 83% of our family structures fall apart. That means we as individuals who are making the choice have the values of a community that 83% of our children will see their family dissolve by the age of 18. Those are our values. Our values are facilitating that conclusion. And that's why in our relationships, our, we, we can't find the right mate because there is no mate in a context where 83% of our family structures dissolve. All right. Amongst Asians in America, particularly. Right. I, I don't know what it is in Asia. Amongst American Asians, 20% of their children will see their family dissolve by the age of 18. That means in the Asian community, they have good mates that reproduce good mates. They have good mates that reproduce good mates. We don't have good mates that reproduce good mates. That's not what we do. What we do is more of a, a smorgasbord, right? Like when we go into the restaurant, we just pick anything from anywhere. Because that's the options that, 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 that exist amongst us. Those are the options that exist amongst us. And it's, just, it's, it's, it's all a matter of logistics, right? How we mate. How we select family, how we develop family, how we sustain family. All of that is going to determine the mates that are available to us, to our children, to our grandchildren. And we don't seem to think this is important, right? So the other day in the group I asked, does it matter about a person's sexual history? And almost unanimously everybody said, no, it doesn't matter. And I'm saying it's ironic, right? That it, for us, we don't think it matters how many... Uh, sexual partners you have but we can't find a decent partner right and, and I'm telling you because I work in logistics that's what I do for a living I make these connections to make sure that the process is efficient I make these connections to make sure that the process is efficient so you think it's about the individual and I'm telling you no it's about the process that creates the individual right um um working in distribution one of the things that you get to see is the quality of productivity and the quality of manufacturing right so like if you want to go out and buy something of quality like if you if you buy let's say for example i work on my car and i buy tools right when i buy tools i want to buy tools uh based on the quality of the tool 
when you buy, when you buy a tool that says made in China, <laughs> it's not going to be a quality tool. Why? Because they don't have the standard to create the tools that are necessary for the job that you need to do. The job that you need to do. The tool is not is not built for that. So you got to go get a Craftsman, right? Craftsman is made in America. Craftsman is one of the best tools you can buy. I, I, I suspect. Um, I'm, I'm not a mechanic. I, I work on my car, but I'm not a mechanic. Um, but if you go to a mechanic, a mechanic will tell you the best tool that you need to buy. Um, and he'll tell you, don't buy that cheap stuff made elsewhere. You need to buy something that's made in America because men who work on stuff make stuff for men who work on stuff. So they make better quality here in America that's going to work for uh, those tools. And I'm saying, if we want better mates, we got to have better families. And there's no other alternative. Do you understand? There's no other alternative. And I know people, I know, I know this for a fact, that when people raising their kids, they don't care about who their kids are going to be for somebody else. But in the Asian community, that's not the case, right? In the Jewish community, that's not the case. In the Arab community, that's not the case. They all are, have in mind their children and who their children are going to marry and who their children are going to reproduce and who they're going to raise, right? Because the fundamental aspect of, I'll say marriage, but it's just relationships or, or mating or reproducing in general, right? Is that you're not just producing physical beings, right? You're producing uh, emotional beings, spiritual beings, social beings, all these characteristics that have to be built into the person. And that means that you have to have the structures that produce those people that can reproduce those people. And that's not what we do. That's not what we do. And people be talking to me like, do you see your children? Like, do I see my children? Like, do you understand like the importance and the value structures that are necessary to get my children to be valuable mates for somebody else's children? And that does not include seeing your children. Right. It does not include child support. Like when you listen to our arguments and our debates over over how we engage, and how we develop and how we nurture our children. It's not about family. It's not about family. So I'm saying, if you're looking for a mate that comes from a structure that is not about family, what's going to be the quality of that mate? It's going to be a very, you're going to have very shallow relationships. One sister said, every guy she's been with has been a bum. Like, you, you, what you have to understand is, black children don't inherit nothing from their parents. They don't inherit nothing from their parents. When you look at, um, so like here in St. Louis, I live in St. Louis. Like something like 90% of the homeless are black men. 90% of the homeless are black men. And what that means is like there's a bell curve of options that are available to you, right? And a bell curve moves from left to right. So on the left end is the low, on the right end is the high. We are very heavy on the left end, right? We're very heavy on the left end. And that's why for a lot of black men, they're involved in a lot of crime, right? Because they're on the bottom, they're on the bottom. So of course, if you if you decide to, if you decide to date a black man, the likelihood that he's going to be a bum is very high. It's very high, right? I'm 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 a I'm a I'm, I work I'm I'm in middle management, right? And I do these trainings, and I go to these trainings with the managers and the VPs and and all these people. I do these trainings, and and the higher up I go in the organization, the fewer black men I see. Right. And what so what I think about when I see this context is the fact that um, that it's, it's what I say on the bottom 
on the on the left side, on the bottom end, is going to be a lot of black men. On the top end, is going to be few black men. Which means when black women go out to look for a mate, you're going to find a lot of those choices coming from the bottom. And that's not their fault, right? We have a history here that has pushed us and forced us into the bottom. And then we are not doing what we need to do to facilitate a better outcome. If you want better men, black women, we got to have better families. There's no way around it. There's no there's no alternative. There's no uh, mentoring. There's no stepdads. There's not enough step. It's crazy, right? You can't. The, the idea that you're going to have better stepdads indicates that you had better dads to begin with. It, it, it's none of that works. We need to we need to lock our families down. Uh, we need to secure our families and we need to do the work to produce better mates for each genera- each uh, preceding generation. And that's not what we're doing. We do what's best for us. We do what's best for us. You know, I used to think, uh, and, and I'll close with this, I used to think when people say they stay together for the children, that, you know, like, why would you stay together for the children? What about your life? And But now I know, right? Because if the Jews have a saying, if I'm not for me, who will be? But if I am only for me, then who have I become? Who have I become if I'm only for me? And so when people talk about they love their children, I don't I don't see that love in the family structures that we have, right? In order to love your children, there has to be love available in the structure, and there is no love in our structure. Our structure is about child support. It's about uh, keeping it in your pants. It's about a lot of silly stuff that has nothing to do with love, and so we don't produce people who have the capacity to love. Okay. Okay. Powerful words. Um, Brother Maïs, tell us a little bit about what prompted uh, that particular, uh, uh, you know, analysis. Um, So uh, I have these conversations. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Yeah. So I have these conversations routinely, right, on social media. Um, and I get a lot of feedback from black people about mate selection and choosing better. And, uh, one of the things I realized is like, anytime you're, you're having a discussion about any topic, right? You have to contextualize the topic. And this, this choose better statement keeps coming out. You've got to choose the right person. I mean, for me personally, I've been, I'm, I'm twice divorced now. And people keep saying to me, you should have chosen better. What about the choices that you made? And so obviously I start to do the research because I want to understand, like, how am I making my choices? Where am I making my choices? And then when you look at the data, it's like, oh, like if if 83 percent of our families are not surviving our children's development, then what what's the impact of my choice? Right. Like if I have a barrel of 100 apples and 83 of them are riding and you telling me to reach into that barrel and pick a good apple, what are the odds of me picking a good apple? And so that's why I was looking at it from that perspective. And so then I go and look at other communities and the choices that they're making and their family structures and the intactness of those structures, right? And as black people, we've had this problem for decades now. Uh, I think the Moynihan report back in 65 or 64 uh, mm-hmm. talked about uh, the, the, the out of wedlock birth rates and how it was going to create the very circumstances that we're looking at today. And it's only increased, obviously, since then. But what you're arguing is you, you, you came out of an experience as an individual 
and you decided to study the environment that produces individuals. And this is one of the things that drew me to your, your video uh, because I appreciated, you know, ask the way I appreciated the act of asking the question and pulling it out of an individualist framework. Because I hear the same things you're talking about, where choices are just dismissed as individual problems, as individual faults, and 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 you know, and I think especially as black men, we've developed a language of punishing ourselves um, in a very particular way for conditions that we don't control. Now, I, I, I want to bring in uh, my, my, my colleague, Doug, from Atlanta. I want to bring him in and I want him to tell uh, his story because I think it, it fits in this dialogue. And, and after we have it, I think, you know, we'll be able to kind of better contextualize it because even though he's going to talk about his experience as an individual, again, I want to bring that into the larger environmental discussion. So let me bring him in. Doug, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you, Dr. Johnson. Can you hear me? Yes, yes. Share with us uh, your experience, if you wouldn't mind. Okay, so um, uh, this story, this this incident happened uh, back when I was in college, um, and that kind of came to mind. I was I was telling Dr. Johnson I was watching one of his earlier uh, interviews that he had with uh, uh, Dr. Uh, the thing, the Dr. Lamont Basil, I believe is his uh, name. Lehman, Lehman Basil, yeah. Lehman Basil, yes. My, my, uh, sorry for the mispronunciation. No, no. Lehman Basil. So, uh, I'm in college. It's senior year. Uh, I had a class, um, you know, just one class I had to take to finish up my degree. And I uh, met a young lady in there. You know, she seemed really cool. And, you know, we started talking or whatever. And, uh, you know, decided, uh, you know, we, we, we start dating. So, uh, started dating and, uh, the, the, this whole thing, the, the whole incident took place over probably about a period of six months. So that was the time period we were, we were dating each other. So, uh, I, you know, were liking her, been going out and I, you know, I let her know, you know, we were going, things going really well. And I, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to become intimate with her. I mean, I, you know, young man, you know, that's kind of, you know, if you're going to be in a relationship with somebody, you want to get to that point. Right. So, uh, she said that she was, you know, kind of want to take it slow and, you know, she, she wasn't saying it was out of the question that she, she wasn't there. So I was like, all right, cool. You know, no problem. So we continued to date. Uh, so, so one, one day, uh, you know, we decided we'd go out to dinner, finish up dinner. We, you know, go to drop her back off at her apartment and, you know, she asked like, hey, wanna, you know, wanna come inside? And I was like, all right, cool. So, you know, I'm, you know, she said she's taking it slow. So I'm just, you know, I'm coming inside. Then we'll have like, you know. Maybe get a drink or something. I'm head on my way, and she was like, "Well, no, I want you. You know, you can stay the night over here. It's kind of late." And so I was like, "Okay." And you know, I'm still, you know, not jumped any conclusions because trying to trying to be respectful and everything. And so I offered and said, like, "Okay, you know, well, I'll, you know, I'll just sleep on the couch out here. You get me like a, a blanket and some pillows. So you know, I just, you know, I'll be cool." And she's like, "Oh no, you can come. You can come sleep sleeping on sleeping in the bed." With me. So I'm like, "All right." Now. I'm still thinking, all right, I'm not going to jump to conclusions. Like, I'm not going to make assumptions because she had made it clear that she wanted to take things slow or whatever. So I said to myself, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let her, you know, let me know how this is going to play out. So if she, you know, goes, gets undressed and comes back, like, in, like, sweats and just will dress up, okay, I'm going to assume, like, hey, it's, you know, it's nothing going to happen. But if she comes back and she's, you know, dr dressed, you know, kind of skimpily, you know, showing some skin, you know, that kind of thing, like, cool. So, she goes and 
changes. She comes back out. She's wearing like a little little halter shirt and just just her panties. So I'm thinking, all right, well, I guess you no, know, I, I guess it's gonna be the moment. So she gets in bed. We're kind of laying there, you know, kind of cuddling and whatnot. You know, I try to you know take it to the the next level. And she was like, no, she didn't want to do that. So I said, all right, cool. You know, I respected you know her wishes. And she said she just wanted to be held. So I was like, all right. So, you know, I stayed the night and I'm just holding, I'm just thinking like, wow, like, I'm really confused now because like you, you, you brought me in, you brought me back to your room, you know, wearing like the little outfit, but I was like, all right, you know what, whatever, I'm just gonna, you know, be respectful, whatnot. So next morning, get up and I let her know how I was feeling. Like, I felt like I had kind of been let on because I mean, if she had just said at the beginning, like, hey, I sleep on the couch, hey, would have been fine with that. I clearly know what that is. You know, that is not in any way indicating to me that there's any thought of being, you know, intimate. So I'm cool, but that's not what happened. So I said, you know, I feel kind of let on. I just, you know, I did that, that, that didn't, that, that wasn't cool to me. So, you know, I left out of there. So probably about a week goes by, you know, we don't talk. Uh, finally enough, she, she, she called me a couple of times. I, you know, I kind of answered, but said, why I had stuff to do. So we, we finally talked, you know, for real, about a week later and you know just general conversation so we go out on another date this is probably uh, maybe a week and a half two weeks after the incident so um, but we were supposed to go out because she had actually said she wanted me to uh, come by and watch a movie with her and I was like alright cool but I, I gotta get up and go to work early next morning so I'm just gonna come watch the movie and then I'm gonna go home and so she was like fine that's, that's fine so I go on over there you know, say, hey, you know, we were some pizza. You know, we watched the movie. The movie's cool. We kind of, you know, sit next to each other, you know, kind of snuggled up or whatever. And the movie goes off. So I'm like, all right, cool. You know, enjoyed it. Had a good time. I'm going to head home. And she's like, no, nah, why don't you stay, you know, watch another movie? So I'm like, ah, I got to get up. She's like, no, nah, just watch one more movie. So I'm like, all right, fine. So we watch another movie. Same deal. Everything's cool. Um, she kind of falls asleep during the movie and whatnot. Uh, so the movie goes off. Movie goes off, I wake up, I'm like, hey, you know, had a good time, it's good seeing you, uh, but I gotta head out, you know, I gotta work tomorrow, so you know, I'm gonna call you tomorrow. And she's like, well, you know, why don't you, you know, I thought you're gonna gonna stay the night. And I was like, nah, I said I was, you know, just coming over to watch the movie, you know, watch the movie, watch two movies or whatever, but, you know, I'm going home, I'm going back to, to my apartment, and I'm gonna go to sleep and get up to work the next day, but, you know, I'm gonna call you tomorrow, you know, and, and you know, we'll just continue from there, so. She persists on saying, I was like, well, no, I thought you were going to stay. And I'm like, well, no, I, I said from the get-go that I was coming to watch the movie and I was leaving to, to go and, you know, get some sleep and go to work and say, I'm going to call you tomorrow. Like, you know, I had a good time. It's good seeing you. It was cool, you know, but I, I'm going I'm to bounce. So she's, you know, kind of looking upset and she's like, you know, fine, whatever. And I'm just like, okay. You know, because I, I mean, I didn't know what else to tell her because I had been very clear about what, what my intentions were coming over there, watching the movie and then going home and everything. So I'm getting my stuff together and I see her, she's checking her phone, which, I'm, you know, it's not unusual. You know, folks, they check the phone and uh, actually she had a missed call while she was asleep. So I'm guessing she was looking at that. But as I'm getting my bag and everything, like I hear her on the phone, like, she's like, hello, is this 911? It's like, yeah, there's a strange man in my apartment and he won't leave. And I turned around and I'm like, wait, what? What are you talking about? Mm. <laughs> what are you mm. doing? Mm. And, and her response to me was, well, what did you expect me to do? Mm. And I'm like, really? You know, and, you know, I, I've, I've seen how this plays out before. We all know, look, 
black man in a woman's apartment, cops show up, right? Two in the morning. I know how that's gonna go down. Like, I don't want no part of that. You know, I've had a pretty, you know, good life so far that I like to continue to to go the way it's been going. So yeah, I'm just gonna leave. Like this. So I was like, I just left out of there as quickly as I could. Man, I went home. You know, I didn't call the next day. Obviously, you know, she tried to call a few days. Like, I didn't talk to her. I was like, well, I'm done. Like, this is it. So probably, probably maybe three months or so later. And she had been kind of trying to call me on and off, and I hadn't answered. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm dating another woman this time. Like we had been together, so you know, we were kind of like your boyfriend and girlfriend at the time. And so I was finally like, all right, let me just like she's gonna keep calling me. It seems it's been three months. Let me just talk to her, clear it out, close it out, and then at least say that I've said like, hey, it's over. You know, we're done. Whatever. So I answer a phone call, and then she tells me this long story about how. You know, well, when it happened with her calling the cops, like, well, she's schizophrenic and she went to the doctor and he told her that she's schizophrenic. So that's why she called because she wasn't in the right mind. But she still wants to be able to talk and stuff. I was like, I don't I don't know if she was telling the truth. The line, I didn't go that far in investigating it because at that point, that just didn't really matter. I was just like, you know what? Right. You know, it's over. I'm done. I'm just just leave, cutting her out of my life. So I cut off all contact, you know, and it was it was over with. But I mean, it's just. Is 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 I couldn't make up that story if I wanted right. to. I, I was that creative. Well, know? that's. But one of the interesting things is you sent me the story in writing, and I posted it, and it was interesting to see how many black men had had similar experiences. Um, I didn't. I didn't communicate this with you, Doug, but I had men write me quick mm-hmm. blurbs, you know, and because I posted that earlier today, and I have men write me quick blurbs on how they had similar experiences. Um, you know, and, 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 and so we could definitely go off on a tangent in terms of schizophrenia or other, you know, psychological disorders, but that's not the focus of the show because we know it doesn't require that for the issue to impact black men adversely. It doesn't require that at all, especially in a context where there are no significant punishments for women that file false claims. But simply on the basis of the accusation, many black men have lost their careers, lost their families. And I'll give you two very quick examples. I posted an article on ex-Titan football player Myron Roll. I think I don't know if I mispronounced his last name, uh, but he is in his third year residency and he's on the front lines dealing with COVID-19. And I posted an article in honor of him in terms of the work he's doing. But I remembered that it wasn't long ago that celebrity Amanda Seals had accused him of, of sexual harassment, but not necessarily, or she claims later, not a harassment that he committed against her, but something anonymous, an anonymous woman came forward and told her in private. And so she publicized that, no evidence, no official charges, and that could have severely damaged his relationship. Or, or an even worse story having to do with a father. Um, this is, uh, I think this one goes back to 2013. And uh, there's an NBCnews.com article you can find. It's called Daughter, I Lied and Sent My Dad to Prison for Rape. And it was basically a story about a nine-year-old girl at the time whose mother was a drug addict and told her that if she didn't you know, tell the authorities that her father had raped her, that she would get a spanking. So she reported her father at the behest of the mother. The father's been in jail and still 
is in jail to my knowledge, even though his daughter, who's now an adult, and his ex-wife, the mother in the situation, have both come forward because the mother is now rehabilitated. Uh, she's gotten treatment for her addictions. Both women have come forward to say that this was fabricated and he's still in jail, right? Simply on the basis of the accusation, no evidence, no, you know, no empirical data, no medical data, nothing. Just the accusation alone is enough, right? So when I bring this up, the connection between the two of you is that if we're going to start having conversations about family, about putting together families, about mating issues and being able to to detect, you know, who good partners can be and so on and so forth, raising children, things of that nature. One of the challenges to that, among many, are the various policy issues that impact black men. So in that instance, going back to Doug, the idea that you can be reported without evidence and have your entire life, especially as a black man, upended, right, with no qualifications, no repercussions for her, even after it comes out that it's a falsified filing, nothing, right? What impact does that have? And we can talk about other policies. We can talk about, you know, carceral policies going back to the Rockefeller laws. We can talk about the ways black men have been hyper incarcerated to the, to the degree where one in three will be incarcerated at some point or have some contact with a criminal justice institution and one in 10 are locked down at the moment. We can talk about double minority, not double minority status and affirmative action from the 1980s to the 90s where black men are not able to compete in certain spaces because they don't offer as many um, opportunities for minority filing uh, for corporations in particular, but other types Types of professions as black women do these things adversely affect our employment they affect our freedom they affect our public perception our reputations and yet you know in the context of building relationships and families these can serve as serious impediments and this goes back to something uh, brother Mai said very earlier on when he said you know in terms of the options available and at that point he was talking about black women's dating options but when you really look at the issues that affect black men, many of them are influenced by policy, meaning they are backed by law at certain at some point. They adversely impact black men's ability to compete. And we can talk about that on an individual level. And there's room for that because that's where, you know, many of these discussions go. But, I, you know, on the Onyx report, I'm very interested in the data. I'm very interested in, the you know, acknowledging the environment that produces the conditions that people grapple with, right? So that's the reason I brought you two together because I think between both analyses, both stories, what we're looking at is a situation that makes and puts black men in a highly vulnerable situation, right? Any responses to any of that from either of you? What do you think? I mean, yes. Um I'm sorry, go ahead, Doug. Go ahead, Doug. Oh, uh, sorry. So, so for me, I, I I think you're hitting the nail right on the head. Um, I don't I don't think as a as a community as black people, and I, I think a lot of times as black men, we don't we don't take seriousness serious the impact that ecology and systems have on what we do and what we can become in society. But that that is to say, when you when you talk about choices, like uh, what what Brother Maes was talking about, the cho- choice is not made in a void. Choice is made um, has a right. Mm-hmm. So, and, and and with his analogy, like he gave with the restaurant, I mean, it's it's the same deal. Like you you have to have the choices available to you that allow you to 
to uh, uh, to be the person that you want to be um, based on your values, right? If you don't have those choices available to you, um, you, you can't become that. That's like, you know, you have, if you have a restaurant, you, you go with the restaurant analogy, you have a restaurant that's, um, you know, it has choices of you can get like, you know, chicken, beef, or mm. pork, but you're a vegetarian, mm. right? And so they say, okay, we're going to give you another choice of fish. Well, none mm-hmm. of those choices allow you to actualize yourself as a vegetarian because that's like your, your particular value. You want to be a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. So that has to do with the system that set up those choices. That didn't have to do with you making the right or wrong choice because the choice for you to right. be is literally not available to you. It's not right? available. We have to, we have to address these, these systems and this ecology that is set up so that we exactly. don't the choices we don't have the, the range of choices or, or 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 the quantity of choices because even even if you say like well there's some individual that no matter what obstacle you put in front of them can rise above and become great like well that's true and that's that's always true you always have those few people that there's just nothing you can put in their way that's going to stop well it, but that's it, not well that's not how a community right elevates and, and again, we can even talk about the choices black men have available to them, because one of the challenges I find that black men end up dealing with, uh, especially at the working class level or, or the underclass, is is often, you know, in order to prove their worthiness as men, you know, often uh, my students will talk about this, how, you know, they're requested to have as much as she is to, to be able to demonstrate that they can be providers. But often what ends up happening is individual men are weighed against a system of support a given woman may have, you know, so she, you know, she might have access to various types of social benefits that he doesn't have. And the question of whether or not he can measure, he can compete and demonstrate his ability to be a provider or whatever, you know, even though we like to say those things don't matter in 2020, men still report being, you know, that those are factors that they're measured against. But he often has to be able to out earn the system of support she has as an individual. And the extent to which he's not able to is supposed to mark him as lesser than. Right. So those things impact choices, too, in terms of what choices men have available in, in a variety of women that often have more social access than they. But Brother Maize, weigh in on this. What are some of your thoughts? Um, so as I listen to you guys speak and, and, and I, I, so remember, I told you, I always try to contextualize. So as I listen, I have information come in and then I try to feed it back out based on what I'm looking at in the context. And when you talk about having choices in the restaurant, it's not just that we don't have choices. The system is like there are these narratives out there that are they're, they're like hidden narratives. You don't see them as a black man because you're raised up in the system. So and nobody's telling you along the way. That's a that's one of the problems of not having the appropriate family structure is that you are not giving a counter narrative to the narrative that's against you. So not only do you not have choices in the restaurant that's available, the choices that you are making are poison specifically. Like it's almost like it's genetically designed to be poisoned against you. So that you're making these choices that are inherently against your self-expression, if you will. And if we don't talk about those narratives that exist, those those counter structures to black manhood and black masculinity that creates this creates a black man that doesn't even know that he's not meeting his like he thinks he's making choices. I hear black men all the time blaming themselves, beating themselves up when they don't and and there's no acknowledgement that there's this entire system 
And unfortunately, because of the breakdown of the black family, even in the black community, that narrative is playing itself out against black men. And so it's not just that we don't have the right choices. Even if we think we're making the right choices, those choices are compromised against the integrity of our self-expression. And so when you talk about a woman being able to to use the police as a weapon against a black man as a result of her mental state where her mental state is not checked. Her mental state is not checked. And so you talk about the compromising of these black men's integrity by just a mere accusation. And so like when you create a system, a system is supposed to have checks and balances, right? We don't want women to find themselves uh, being assaulted and having no way to defend themselves and their integrity. But you also there has to be a way to check and balance that to make sure that that system is not being utilized against black men and because the conversation like the conversation this conversation here it's it's a it's a rare conversation where black men get to have a honest conversation that's it it, it doesn't like i don't want it to appear like because you you have some of these black men out here and you can tell that there's this rage and anger against black women and i don't i don't want to be a part of that right but i do want a system that is balance it to the benefit of those people who are striving for good whether you're a man or a woman you're striving for virtue you're trying to be an honest person with integrity and striving in this uh what they call a meritocracy but actually what's happening is it's a meritocracy for certain people at the cost of other people mm-hmm. and not having the conversation then what what it means is you're being told like this has always been our position as black people but now it seems to be more explicitly directed at black men where i even hear black women saying black men need to do this but in what context though in what context is that your expectation of what a black man is and what he should be and who raised that black man how is he aware of his masculinity and his manhood what is that supposed to be and so there's a way where that woman was able to utilize the system against an individual black man and i promise you there will be people out there who will say he should have done this he should have done oh, that of course like, of course wow like, well you know it's, but let's it's, add it's, to that though but let's add to that though because it, it, you know some of the men that responded to me when they talked about their experiences one of the things that they said was that it, it it didn't actually have to do with any particular psychological condition or anything of that nature it was strictly on the basis of her being upset that he did not do what she told him to now that's an interesting thing when you think about it because it's one thing to say somebody is suffering from a very particular issue that they've had diagnosed and they may or may not be treated for. It's another thing if you've experienced this from people who haven't necessarily been diagnosed with anything in particular, but are responding to whether or not you are being, you know, are following directives that they believe you need to follow. If you're in a situation where you can have the authorities levied against you strict simply because you haven't done what someone else wants you to do. Now we're talking about a very particular different, a very particular set of control issues where the state can be levied against the individual. And this is not just limited to false claims of sexual assault or rape for that matter. We can also have this conversation in the context of something like child support right? mm. or, or divorce. And, I, and this is something I reported on a, uh, a couple months ago where you even had lawyers coming forth saying that they actually do routinely tell their female clients in the, in the context of divorce that filing false charges, especially of abuse to children, is one method of securing confidence from the court 
on who should get custody and what types of child support and, and, and supervision should come into play. So there are multiple institutions on the table in regard to what can be levied against individual black men. And as you pointed out a moment ago, not very many platforms where black males can talk about these experiences. Right. Right. You know, I, I agree. Any reflections on now? It, it, I, I'm not sure about Doug, but I know, you know Maie Ma said you were divorced. Any yeah. reflections on divorce that may play into this narrative as well? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So I need you to understand. So I, I have, I have. I, there's a way I look at reality, right? I always try to look at reality and contextualize it. I, I, I bring that up over and over again. So in my own personal situation. My ex-wife left me for another man mm. and uh, put a restraining order on me, which got me put out of my house. Mm. She was to secure child support. Like I didn't even, the day I was supposed to go see the judge, I had some work matters that I could not leave my job. And so they levied child support against me, put a mm. restraining order against my house. She took the money for child support and didn't pay the mortgage. So I couldn't pay for where I was living. Wow. Pay the mortgage and pay the child support. She didn't pay the mortgage. I lost my house for nothing. Like my, my wow. the inheritance that I have for my kids in my house is gone. And I can't go to the courts and say she did this. I right. can't. There's no space for me to do that. Like mm -hmm. this. And, and I'm saying, but she was able to go to the courts, create this scenario in which I was the bad guy and it was just. The judge scribbled a signature on it, and that was it. There was there was nothing I can do. Now people can come and say like I should have got a legal team, but what black man can afford a legal team against the system? Like what when I went to talk yeah. to the attorney, they was talking about two hundred and fifty dollars an hour. Like with the restraining yeah. order, with the mm -hmm. child support, with the house, all of that stuff, my living conditions. There's no way I could afford to pay an attorney two hundred and fifty dollars an hour. Well, and and you just pointed out why there are many black men that are not able to fight those kind of claims or get custody because at the end of the day many of them can't afford the legal kind of protection to push that angle that's a very important point when we go back to the question of the environment and the context that produces these situations you know what i mean but uh yeah. we only have uh, a couple of minutes any final reflections from from either of you then i gotta let you go first all right uh so well first i'd say uh you know thanks for having me on uh, just to share that, I, you know, I hope, you know, my, my experience, which um, unfortunately is not the worst of what a, a, a lot of brothers out here experience can can help someone in some way uh, by hearing that engage in these conversations. But mm. but but additionally, I, I, I would say that what we we've all kind of talked about here today is essentially the, the black man is held to a lot of times held to a standard uh same standard as the white man in society when it as far as from our our women and, and what i mean is so if you look at the white white man you know traditional narrative about men you know if you look at everything generally speaking about white men they have access to resources uh mm -hmm. both legal social cultural economic that mm -hmm. allow them to have the dominant position uh in their families in their in their communities mm -hmm. whereas black men that we, we we don't have those same legal social cultural economic institutions backing us and mm -hmm. so we have the same expectation levied upon us um, as men from a lot of our women but not having those resources so you're going to find large you know 
instances of disappointment and frustration and and a lot of times resentment that comes mm-hmm. from those those you know comes comes from you know a lot of women in our community just because of that not of not understanding that lack of resources and, and particularly because I, I have these conversations with my wife all the time we talk about like there's there's this there's like there's a particular class of black woman now i want to be very specific when i say this like this is not all black women but there's a this, there's a particular class of black women that is allowed a very loud vocal influential minority that holds black men to a standard that based upon the social cultural economic resources that we don't have access to we could never meet mm-hmm. and so self-fulfilling prophecy of saying well mm-hmm. the kind of you know black men ain't shit or you mm-hmm. know whatever reason he doesn't make enough money he's you know not cultured enough he's not you know whatever whatever the case may be mm-hmm. uh, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because there's no way black men in mass could live up to that 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 right. absolutely what you always talk about the the, the, the dual black male economy like absolutely. Um, but <laughs> i saw a, it was a, as a meme i may, have, may or may not have sent it to you but it had a you know one box it has a, a woman saying like well a man should pay you know three times his salary to get like a engagement ring for the woman and the man's response is like so <laughs> right that is the is the father gonna pay for the wedding, the wedding? <laughs> and, <laughs> right and, and, and going by the eight three percent you know number okay a lot of us come from divorced families you know i okay. know personally i you know my, Hold on. We, my father we, we, we only got it we only got a minute brother so i want to i want to give brother maiz the the, the okay. chance to close out your statement sir your reflection I just want to say, when you're talking about uh, a black man and contextualizing, just remember this, that the middle black family has a net worth of about 1700 compared to 121,000 a white family. So that's the cost of a family in America and black men can't afford. We don't have the $121,000 to negotiate with our women with. And they expect us to have what white men have. And we don't have that. And that's at the root of our conflict with our women. And we got to address that. You know, I, I that's powerful closing, brother. And I want to thank both of you guys for coming on. Um, I, I, I really, I really am grateful to both of you. And I want to close out by saying, I'm here to tell you, brothers, we are not criminals by birth, perennial rapists, incapable intellects, man children, sperm donors, child support wellsprings, success objects, walking phalluses, ATM machines, lottery tickets. I am here to tell you, brothers, we are not criminals by birth perennial rapists, incapable intellects, man-children, sperm donors, child support wellsprings, success objects, walking phalluses, ATM machines, lottery tickets, unpaid bodyguards, interchangeable stepfathers, child discipline proxies, unpaid repairmen, workhorses, or any other socially accepted dehumanizing stereotype. We are thinkers, inventors, innovators, leaders, fathers, and men. Embrace your humanity, know your worth, and extend your time, attention, and resources only to those who genuinely respect you. And remember, your worth is not defined by meeting other people's narcissistic, selfish, and unrealistic needs.